Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I am visiting with University of Toronto professor Anna Sternschis to talk about Yiddish glory, Yiddish songs from World War II. Anna served as executive producer of the Yiddish Glory Project, the initiative that brought back to life the forgotten Yiddish music written during the Holocaust in the Soviet Union. Welcome, Anna. Shalom Aleichem, and thank you for having me. Delightful to have you. I know you were here at the Yiddish Book Center last summer uh, for our Steiner Summer Yiddish program, and we spoke briefly about you were in the midst of all of this, so it's so amazing to uh, hear what what this, how it all came about um, and just to hear the, the, the resulting work. So tell me a little bit about the project and the background. Um, thank you. Uh, the project started when... Uh, I uh, started working with a collection of uh, the Kiev uh, Cabinet for Jewish Culture, an institution that functioned in Ukraine uh, before the war and uh, also was closed uh, in 1949, right after the war. And uh, the archive, which is stored uh, until today in the National Library of Ukraine, had songs that uh, workers of the cabinet, the um, uh, ethnomusicologists uh, who worked there, led by Moisey Berigovsky, collected during the war. Um, they started this work when uh, many of them were on trains uh, being evacuated from the war zone uh, and where they encountered Jewish refugees from western parts of the Soviet Union who sang Yiddish songs for them, and many of those songs were you know, talking about things that were happening right then in Ukraine in 1941. They continued this work when they were in Central Asia and again encountered many uh, Polish Jewish refugees, Soviet Jewish evacuees, perhaps wounded soldiers from the Red Army, and uh, recorded their music, documenting all that experience. And then uh, in 1944, Berigovsky and his colleagues returned to Kiev and uh, uh, went to organize a number of field trips uh, uh, around Ukraine where they uh, encountered Holocaust survivors, uh, usually from Transnistria region, who again sang Yiddish songs for them about what was going on there during the war. So in other words, uh, when I started reading through the texts of these songs, I realized that, first of all, None of them looked familiar. And uh, second of all, that uh, Berigovsky never got to publish the book, uh, an anthology of the songs that he was working on because he was arrested uh, by by Stalin's government, and then the archive was confiscated from him. And also, I realized that people who sang the songs for him, they never got to sing them uh, out loud. In other words, we never got to hear their voices. In fact... It was to such extent that we never got to hear their voices that historians believed for a very long time that Yiddish uh, culture uh, essentially died during the war in the Soviet Union. Uh, In other words, uh, we believe that once Jews were drafted into the Red Army, they stopped speaking Yiddish, with the exception of writing some letters to their uh, family members in Yiddish sometimes, but not very often, or 
that people who were evacuated to Soviet Central Asia, they did not really speak um, uh, Yiddish on everyday basis, or at least didn't create uh, popular culture. So the archive really showed this whole new side of Yiddish culture that uh, uh, we didn't know existed. And um, uh, I decided that uh, the material was too good and too important to just be kept in uh, academic circles. And uh, I invited the musician Psoy Karolenko, Russian-born, but now kind of Russian-Jewish-American musician with uh, deep knowledge of Yiddish culture and of Soviet culture, to work with me on this material so that we can uh, bring this text back to life as music. And uh, um, we started working. We selected some songs from the collection. There were about 200-something songs that documented Soviet uh, wartime experience in Yiddish. We selected about 30 um, of them. He added uh, some tunes to them. Many of them did not have tunes uh, before because Berigovsky never finished that project. And then... Um, uh, we worked with a musical producer, Dan Rosenberg, who put together a band of uh, musicians from different genres uh, uh, who helped us to perform this music uh, on uh, an entirely new level with uh, multiple arrangements done by um, Sergei Yordenko, who's a Roma a Russian violinist, and involved Sophie Millman, Canadian jazz singer, a child singer, Isaac Rosenberg, and uh, many other people. So the result of that uh, work, which took about, I want to say, three years, uh, from the start till the CD came out, is that CD, Yiddish Glory, The Lost Songs of World War II. So was there a tradition for these types of songs? Jewish tradition is very rich with songs that depict violence and that talk about, that help people make sense of things that no human being should ever, you know, make sense of. Uh, we have pogrom songs written as early as the 17th century, and they survive uh, for us to... Um, to uh, read the lyrics. And in fact, for historians, those songs are often the only source of uh, understanding how people lived through this kind of violence. So Jewish tradition, unfortunately, is very rich with those um, uh, songs, with those uh, folk materials that depict violence and that talk about, uh, that talk from the point of view of victims of that violence. And what we saw happening with these uh, songs written during World War II is that the authors of the songs really relied on that old tradition in order to describe what they saw. So, for example, many of them uh, changed words or locations or the enemy uh, using the old pogrom songs written in 1918. So they would change Cossacks to Hitler, and here we go. We have a new song about the Nazi atrocities against Jews. So some of the earlier ones were built like this. And um, the other tradition that the songs used was the Soviet uh, popular culture that um, really was mobilized to fight against fascism, against Germany. And uh, many of these Yiddish songs borrowed lines or translated lines from popular Soviet songs uh, of the time that encouraged to kill as many uh, Germans or as many uh, members of the German army uh, as possible, and uh, that encouraged the people to have no mercy, and uh, all that uh, is in that uh, material. So the two traditions, and interestingly enough, uh, the 
Soviet songs written in Russian uh, were often composed by Soviet Jewish authors as well, but not Yiddish ones. And I was also intrigued by the fact that you refer to the folklorists who, as you mentioned in, in some of the pieces I've read about this project, that they risk their lives to collect these songs. And yes. it's almost, um, well, it's not quite the same in terms of risking their lives, but in the same way that Onsky went out and chronicled in 2000, or in 2000, right. in 1912, 1914, and he captured Shtetl Life before it disappeared. Yeah. It seems as though that's also carrying on a tradition of recording, not literally recording the stories, but recording this aspect of Jewish history, yes? Oh, for sure. You know, I, Ansky is an excellent example because Barry Govsky, who led this project, comes from that tradition, you know, like, of, and, and I think Barry Govsky and his colleague Sholem Cooperschmidt and Ida Shaikis and uh, linguist Ruvim Lerner, uh, the, the people who worked on this project, they understood immediately that they lived through the moment of history that they need to record. Um, just like Emanuel Ringelblum understood that when he was in Warsaw Ghetto, or Shmerka Kaczerginski understood, and this whole, you know, Avram Sutskever and all this uh, paper brigade and Vilna Ghetto, or collectors in Lodge Ghetto, these are the sources from which we have Holocaust music. They understood that they need to pre preserve um, this folk creativity. But what happened to Birigovsky, uh and why I say he risked his life, is that uh, when he finished this work, the war was over. Uh, so Ringenblum didn't get to see the end of the war, but uh, Berigovsky, uh survived it in, uh, in relative safety somewhere in Central Asia. And then, um, you know, he comes back to Ukraine. He continues this work. By 1948, the book with all the songs is done, and they're about to print it. Even went for a round of censorship, and then it's all set and to be published in 1949. But uh, Stalin now changed his policies towards Jews, and all Jewish public institutions were closed in the Soviet Union um, starting from 1948. By 1950 they, or 1951, they were all gone. And Berigovsky uh, was arrested, and so was Elie Spivak, the linguist who was the head of that um, uh, research lab, which I call cabinet, which makes no sense in English, but forgive me, I'm just saying, uh, calling it cabinet like they call it in Yiddish. And um, they were accused in uh, building Jewish nationalism. And what it meant is uh, that they were creating this narrative of remembering the war or making sense of the war that was specific to Jews where Soviet ideology was saying that Soviet people experienced the war as Soviet people, and we can't, uh, and if you start arguing that Jews suffered more or Jews uh, made sense of it differently, then you're arguing for Jewish nationalism. And uh, we can't say whether Berigovsky was arrested for this project, although some of the materials, some of the songs that he collected, were used as evidence against him during the trial. But uh, we definitely know that it was not easy for him to uh, to do this work, and he was released from jail in 1956, and then he, um, three years after Stalin's death, and then he spent the rest of his life preparing his archive for other people to use, and that's how we have many, if not most, klezmer tunes available to all of us. But this particular project he could never finish because these documents were not returned to him after he was released from jail. 
And that tells you that even after Stalin's death, all these materials were still not considered to be uh, benign enough or innocent enough to to return them to the research. So um, it's it's a fascinating story to me, and it parallels so many other recoveries of things. You mentioned Ringelmann, you, um, and you mentioned the paper brigade and all of that. I understand that these were discovered in the basement of the Ukrainian National Library. And again, did, when when did all this happen? It's such an important discovery. So uh, it ha- so the I don't know the exact timeline, but I will give you what I know from mm-hmm. what was published and what I gathered. So after the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991, uh, the basement of the Ukrainian National Library uh, was um, stopped being used as this depository for the, uh, you know, Soviet secret police arrested archives. As you can imagine, these were not the only boxes there. They arrested a lot of people and they confiscated a lot of archives, but they didn't destroy them. So they're there. And... Um, they found these boxes. The librarians who worked there sometime in 1992 uh, and 93, they, they saw these boxes with Yiddish in it, and it was not cataloged. So uh, Ludmila Sholokhova, uh, who was a librarian then, uh, cataloged these documents, and uh, I think she did this work sometime in the mid-'90s. So she, she spent years on uh, cataloging that. Uh, in, uh, but in the end of the 1990s, she left Ukraine and she moved to New York. And as you know, now she's the head of uh, the YIVO archive and the director of YIVO's uh, library. But uh, she did, uh, she actually cataloged this collection and the materials uh, therefore became available just in theory to researchers like me. Uh, I came across these documents by accident. I was working on another project. I was working on my dissertation, actually, which was 150 years ago. Um, you know, uh, and in the end of the 1990s, I came to Ukraine, and I saw Mila, and I asked her about materials that could help me write the dissertation. And this, I was working in the 20s and 30s, and she said, we have that, but we also have the war. Do you want to see that? And I said to her, no, I need to finish my dissertation, so I'm not looking at anything that will distract me. Then I remembered that conversation many years later, maybe eight or, seven, eight or nine years later, and I went back, and uh, the catalog is there, and I started looking at this material, and then uh, it took me years to, you know, look at it, to uh, photocopy some of it, and uh, start thinking what it all means, and uh, once I finally um, actually looked at all this and started thinking about this, I realized that this was uh, a treasure and uh, decided to to do this project. But um, until now, these documents are still in Kiev. And as you can imagine, they are quite hard to access. They are in open access, but they are in Kiev. So the catalog is not digitized, for example. So if you want to go and uh, find that right now, you don't have from sitting in Amherst, there's no easy way for you to do this. So if you go to the website of the Ukrainian National Library, and uh, you, there's no way to know that this is what they have, you know, and uh, it's still there. So even though the collection is uh, known, it's still not used or not widely 
not not utilized actually uh, at all, and uh, it's a real shame. Can you tell me a little bit about um, what stories these songs tell? I know some are humorous. They are a, sort of a way of storytelling, sharing news, and it feels like it's a very, as we talked about earlier, it's a very Jewish way of capturing, sharing, and, and having the continuity. Yeah. Right. So um, songs, each song is its own story. Uh, first, I need to say that all of them are amateur, and I was able to identify only one or two authors as uh, as authors, one of them was uh, Mendelman, actually, uh, who is a relatively well-known Yiddish uh, poet and artist and uh, wrote Book of Memoirs, and never mentioned that he ever collected the songs. Maybe he wrote them, I don't know, in the archive says that he collected them. So um, I'll start with that and say that one group of songs tells stories of Red Army soldiers fighting against Hitler in the Red Army. And these are the most violent, the most graphic, the most, uh, I don't know, unapologetic uh, songs uh, ever written in Yiddish. I want to make that claim. Because they call for things like, um, you know, slice Germans into tiny little pieces, kill them like uh, Kale. Kale, uh, as you know, is a Yiddish uh, word for a butcher that kills non-kosher animals. So the shoichet slaughters animals in, uh, uh, for, for consumption, so he uses more merciful ways of killing. But when the butchers kill animals like pigs uh, for using their skins to make belts and stuff like this, they don't have to follow these laws of shita. So they, are no, they, uh, they, they just do it the most efficient way as opposed to humane way. And the word kele refers to butchers like this as those who are cruel, who kill, who have known the shoma, you know, the ones who kill uh, without thinking about what they're doing. So this is how the song refers to uh, Germans and say that you are such a, you think you're such a good kele, but we will kill you and slice pieces of, uh, and we'll slice you into stripes, like that kind of lyrics. Um, uh, the other thing we see in the songs is huge support for Joseph Stalin. And uh, this is something uh, something to be mentioned because uh, Yiddish songs about Stalin, of course, did not start during the war. In fact, they were, many of them, written in the 1930s. But in the 30s, they kind of seemed artificial because many songs just uh, were singing about something else and they would add a verse about Stalin. And uh, you could tell that uh, Stalin didn't really belong there, but it was added so that to make the song publishable or whatever. But during the war, that changes. So Stalin is now the antidote of Hitler. And that's when songs about Purim, for example, becomes, become very popular. So Hitler is obviously a man, and uh, that's not a Soviet connection. A lot of uh, Yiddish Holocaust songs compare Hitler with Haman. You know, Hitler himself talked about Haman in one of his speeches. Um, and, uh, and uh, you, you know, this, this parallel is not unique, but what's interesting about Soviet songs is that who rescues Jews from Haman? And that rescuer is always Joseph Stalin. So we see that kind of reinterpretation of Purim and also reinvigoration of Jewish humor. 
And one of the things that was very interesting about this archive is that about 30% of songs in that archive are humorous songs. And I have to tell you, I didn't expect so much humor. I expected uh, songs about killing. I expected songs about devastation. I expected songs about hopelessness. And I found all the songs. I was not disappointed in that, of course. But I didn't expect that I will read all these songs about Mamzer Hitler or songs about um, um, uh, Germans running with their pants down or... Um, or, you know, defecating uh, from fear. And there's a lot of this kind of graphic uh, uh, toilet humor, you know, something that uh, uh, is very widespread in the song. There's some profanity uh, as well. And, uh, and um, that is such a big part of this archive. And I spent some time thinking about what it means. And, um, you know, two things explain, could explain some, uh, the prevalence of humor, or maybe more things. The first of all, Soviets really liked using humor as a weapon against Nazism. It was encouraged. It was in all newspapers. Second, uh, a lot of Holocaust survivors say that humor often helped them to um, retain a sense of humanity. And uh, say if you laugh at something, it will not kill you. And uh, finally, uh, maybe uh, humor is uh, something that the young people use to cope with what they've seen. You know, like ch children and young people, they like this uh, uh, you know, physical humor and all this. That's universal. Just the children and young people who were writing the songs in Yiddish and the Soviet Union lived for the war. And uh, they used that kind of humor in order to make sense of these things. Ah, well, I think you've spoken to the importance of saving these recordings and the story of, you know, how the how this all came about is really quite fascinating. Thank so, you. Anna, thank you so much for joining me today and for your work on this project, which is Yiddish Glory, The Lost Songs of World War II. The CD is available uh, at shop.yiddishbookcenter.org or in the Yiddish Book Center's online or on-site bookstore, excuse me. And... Um, when we go out, I just want to ask, is there one song in particular, if we could just play a little bit of it, that you feel is either one that really speaks to you or emblematic of the whole project? <laughs> uh, I think the a really interesting song is song number 10, recorded from uh, uh, a child. It's called My Mother's Grave, and uh, it uh, was recorded from a 10-year-old kid who sang about losing his or her mother. Uh, to the uh, to the war and to the other side of the river from where you don't come back. And we have a child singer, Isaac Rosenberg, performing that song, so trying to really give voice to uh, that um, a child who we don't even know if it was a boy or a girl, you know, who first recorded that, uh, sang that song to researchers. Great. Well, th um, thank you again, Anna. This is 
really wonderful that you've done this work, um, and also thanks for sharing all of this with us today. Thank you. It's such a pleasure talking to you. Okay, hope to see you here again soon. <laughs> I hope so, too. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, you too. Bye. listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. My name is Sylvia Peterson, Education Program Manager at the Center. For more information about this podcast and to subscribe, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. While you're there, I recommend listening to Episode 69, Aaron Lansky's 2013 conversation with Mark Cohen, biographer of the late, great comedian Alan Sherman. Until next time, be well, be healthy, Zeitgesund. Zeitgesund.